let's begin that story live. I think I think that might be a good place. Yeah, to start. that's the way, that's a good place to start. Wait, it's are we going story. live? Do you want to go live? Well, not. Li- oh, no, I think he means. I mean, not recording. live. I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Fake live. Yeah. Just tell me when uh, you guys are on. ready to. It's all it's like all one, there. two, three, clap. Okay, we're clap. All right. There we go. We're not live. We're not live. No, we are not. We're, we're dead. We're the undead. Are we though? I'm not. Well, I mean, whatever. You're post dead. Yeah, I'm post dead. You posted it. So James Lindsay and King Crocodac are uh, two giants of the. Uh, what, what what is there a domain? Would you guys like you guys are kind of post skeptic or post capital S T M skeptic? You know? I'd I'd, sure. I'd I'd call myself a naturalist. Oh yeah, I can go with that. You're na- you're both naturalists. Yeah, I mean I'm certainly like anti constructivist. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is, is humanism at all salient to you guys? Or? Well, the number of times that word appears in Marx. Has made me not comfortable with that word anymore. But okay. in what I would have thought it meant a few months ago, yeah. <laughs> That's what Marx will do to you. Yeah. You know, I read a lot of Marx over the over the winter. It, it was a dark winter of disease and death, as Joe Biden predicted, but not for the reasons that he thought. <laughs> well, you did it to yourselves. Well, you got to do what you got to do. So, okay, so naturalism, you guys both have roots. Well, James, you're more, your roots are more in mathematics <clears throat> and probably rhetoric just as a process of uh, speaking and interacting with uh, social movements. And then King Crocoduck, you are also rhetoric because you make all these, you've made tons of great video content and it's mostly about science or naturalism. So you guys are in a trajectory to exchange ideas or ask questions or have arguments about the fine points of these things, right? So Yeah, so we actually... Just to kind of like cut through the BS because we're not figuring out how to get to where we were. <laughs> we were talking before we started. And uh, Mr. Crocodile and I have been in correspondence for some amount of time now for plus years. It turns out um, we first began corresponding. I was watching his videos uh, prior to beginning the Grievance Studies Affair and was particularly taken with his uh, takedowns of social constructivism and so on. And um, – in his uh, kind of exposing the the terrible epistemology of three different videos that he had done in particular. And so somehow during the – one way or another, during the Grievance Studies affair, he and I actually ended up on the phone together. I remember talking. the – I remember the exact circumstances of how this happened. Yeah. So I, I had a plan to do a Sokol Squared hoax of my own, completely independently of you. Uh and I was going to make it a very long-term project. I had, I had very ambitious ideas about uh, basically going through a standard um, textbook in, in gender studies or something to, of that nature and kind of breaking down the distribution of that book citations by um, the types of journals being published in and basically send, sending a proportional number of papers um, to those journals. And those, those, those would be hooks papers. And of course, to accomplish this kind of massive task, you need a big team. Um, so I hit up a bunch of people on Twitter, uh, including Helen Pluckrose, actually, by by happenstance. She, um, she's a, she, we have a mutual acquaintance, uh, Helen and I, a philosopher who has been very influential on me. And uh, one of one of our correspondents, I believe Jeffrey Miller, contacted James because he was aware of the hoax that 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 James was planning, and. Uh, 
you know, J- James and I got into contact after that. And um, afterwards, uh, he would periodically update me on how the grievance affair was going. Um, yeah, today we, we got the bot- the fat bodybuilder paper published. Uh, today, we- <laughs> <laughs> today we got intersectional Mein Kampf published. So I was I was kind of uh, yeah I was I was I was I was kind of aware of what was going on, and in the intervening years, all of these hoax papers have been sincerely uh, followed through, or people have written similar papers that are completely sincere and published them in magazines about you know fat bo- bodybuilding and oh it's worse than that with fat bodybuilding um jeff cole who is a, a neuroscientist of some kind uh he's the guy who you know that that phobia of patterns of holes tricks of phobia or whatever like you look at a beehive and like you start to be triggered and so there's like this phobia of like holy looking things that guy the guy who came up with that wrote a paper arguing that fat bodybuilding specifically should be reinstated by the fat studies journal because um it doesn't rely on any false data and they accepted it so they should stand by it but then he went on to criticize us and said that we were completely wrong and bad in our approach with the grievance studies affair because there's no neutral ground upon which somebody could stand to say that fat bodybuilding is is ridiculous and so he wrote an academic paper and it was accepted in a sociology methods journal about this topic and i think it's a methods journal i'd have to look it up again but um we were actually invited alan sokol got involved himself and uh, after he's seeing this and put leverage on the journal and we got invited to come in and um, write a reply to it, Peter, Helen, and I. And then before our reply even got published, they published Jeff Cole's further reply saying that he had gone and collected data by polling a bunch of undergraduate students who generally agreed, statistically speaking, that in fact, there, no one could possibly say that fat bodybuilding is ridiculous. And um, I stand by the claim that fat bodybuilding is on its face ridiculous. And uh, apparently there's been some drama in the academic literature around that. But it's cool because we got to have an academic paper about our own project published in an academic journal as a result. So yeah. that's something. The the question of neutral ground on deciding if something is absurd or not, does that – there's there's got to be a philosophy behind that. And is that social constructivism? Is that so, what it is? as I see it, the the grievance studies affair um, was basically trying to demonstrate that there are epistemological standards that are not being adhered to by by journals which claim to be uh, in the production of knowledge. And um, I think that that. This continues to be borne out by the kind of thing that you're that you're describing. You know, uh, I, I haven't seen the paper, but I would I would very much uh, be interested in kind of the context of of what's being discussed about these students agreeing that fat bodybuilding isn't on its face ridiculous. Well, in in what context are are we talking about? Is it is it kind of an abstract philosophical context where you know the students were invited to uh, engage in some kind of uh, I don't know um, experimental theorizing. Um, you know what? What? What exactly? So I, I can't. I can't comment on that specifically. But with regard to the initial papers that were published in the in the grievance studies affair, I think it it demonstrated a point that I was kind of trying to raise with my with my videos that that James referenced earlier, and uh, it's kind of been disheartening to see the reaction to that. Um, 
you know, I, I was anticipating that it would have, it would have made some kind of difference. In academia. Yeah. Yeah. It made, it made virtually no difference whatsoever. Uh, as a matter of fact, you see major medical journals, like things that we would have thought were too obviously hoaxish to try to slide into a humanities journal a few years ago are now being routinely published by, you know, the Lancet, <laughs> the New England Journal of Medicine. And so um, the ideological capture that we're looking at, um, and thus, you know, since we've got Crocoduck here, the Lysenkoism that's going to follow, especially when we talk about infecting medicine or if it were infecting engineering, or I guess classically agriculture in some sense or another, um, but with medicine in particular, the Lysenkoism that's going to follow, you know, we're, we're watching a catastrophe in the making. We're watching the center of intellectual life of our society just not even just teeter on the brink, but kind of gleefully leap off the precipice. Um, so, you know, the, I, I think we've talked about this before, Benjamin, the churches up until the Enlightenment were the centers of intellectual life, whatever that means, in, say, most European societies or cities, and then that transition to the universities over the course of, you know, the past couple hundred years, and now those have become completely corrupted in a similar way. You know, I would, whatever you want to think about Luther or Lutheranism or, you know, Protestantism in general, in a similar way to where Luther's like, nope, time to nail some theses to the wall. Um, because the Catholic Church had become so deeply corrupted by the early 1500s. We're, we're seeing that same kind of level of corruption in the new center of intellectual life, which is going to be located in the um, the university, or the, the academy more generally. And like I said, they're gleefully leaping off the precipice. They have literally no limiting principle, because the only people who might have it are either distracted or uh, cowardly or captured, um, and, and therefore not taking steps. So the only measurable step that was taken, as far as I know, to clean up the issues we exposed with the Grievance Studies Affair, the only thing that I know that happened was they started to require that you prove your identity to publish in these journals uh, so that you can't use a fake identity, which is ridiculous because there are a lot of people being disaffected from woke right now, it would be very easy to recruit armies of former woke people who have the credentials and might be willing to do a career kamikaze mission at this point. Um, it would be very easy, in fact, to just imply that maybe such people already exist. Maybe there are lots of them. Maybe I've been working with them quietly for years. Mm -hmm. Maybe there are hundreds of fake papers out there under names that you wouldn't think are fake because they are actually people who used to be legitimately part of your disciplines. And good luck finding which ones they are, because there's no way to distinguish between a fake paper and a true paper because of the exact epistemological because of issues this, we uncovered. This no neutral ground, this this inability to tell what is ridiculous or not. What 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 is the what is the bedrock? Is it social constructivism? Where did I mean, this start? It's it, it's difficult to reduce it to one thing, because okay. I, th I think what you're looking at is the intersection of a set of circumstances that issue not just from ideology, um, but from things like careerism in the academy, mm -hmm. um, bureaucratic metastasis. Um, there are forces at play that have to do a, a, a lot to do with money, to be honest. 
um, you know, people people who don't necessarily believe in this nonsense are still incentivized to pay lip service to it or, or to treat it with kid gloves. Um, because, uh, you know, I, I don't want to go too deeply into, into the kind of problems the academy is facing. Um, but there, 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 there are monetary and career-based incentives to create a kind of uh, a, a kind of bullshit, you know, associate vice dean of diversity in such and such department, or hundreds um, of them. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, bureaucratic metastasis. Yeah. Um, it's not, you know, pe- people who who criticize us, they'll say, you know, you have this cultural Marxist conspiracy theory where some evil cabal of people are trying to uh, destroy them, and and such such people do in fact exist, but they're not independently sufficient to create the kind of phenomenon we're looking at. We're also looking at broken incentive structures that are allowing this kind of nonsense to propagate. Yeah, the universities are in bad shape. They're in really bad. They've painted themselves into some bad corners. Um, I'm particularly fond of pointing out that, you know, when they, they the, the when Bill Clinton passed the policy allowing for the federal underwriting of student loans, essentially what happened was a infinite reservoir of somebody else's money became available to universities, which then shifted many of their priorities uh, because they had the opportunity to do so. And they started to compete for collecting and keeping students as opposed to, you know, maybe academic rigor or research quality or some of the other things besides all of these other problems that were also happening. And they did this by investing in huge amounts of infrastructure. We don't have to go into any detail about this. It's just to give give a sense of, of what Crocodile is talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of mortgages so now you're on the hook and you can't lose students and so you have two percent of your students are these kind of broken woke people who complain about everything and see a problem in everything and everything's a threat and there's not enough safety and they throw a fit and if you are willing to bend over and change your whole institutional apparatus to keep those two percent of kids because you're that desperate to make sure you keep everybody and nobody loses their ability to keep paying for school whether it's loans or you know lottery-based scholarships here in tennessee or or wherever else whatever other kinds of scholarships, which was obviously a priority in every faculty meeting I attended in the last three or four years I taught. That's 2007, 8, 9, and 10. Um, when you're in that kind of a situation, you're going to get led around by the most cantankerous students. So that's just one of many problems without even talking about, you know, bureaucratic issues, et cetera, et cetera. This is one of many problems. And so yeah. you can see where they're going to want to bring in administrators to placate those students and give them what they want. You know, you need a course about this or you need, you know, evening seminars about that. You need clubs for this. We need to get those people off campus. We need to make sure, you know, the unsafe events that involve Milo Yiannopoulos don't occur. You know, whatever it happens to be, um, you know, if you're desperate to keep the most complaining few percent, then those people become gratuitously empowered, outsized empowerment to uh, renormalize the entire institution. And that's one example of a structural issue the university was facing that led it into this road. And there are probably close to it. There are at least half a dozen that we could mm-hmm. talk about, you know, in, in any level of detail if we wanted to have kind of a boring bureaucratic podcast now as for what you're asking about though the is that weird who's to say mentality you know ultimately it's you can't boil it all down to social constructivism but really that's sort of a key root to it uh the postmodern 
view, of course, if we go back to, to Foucault's writings, Foucault began one of his most influential early writings was Birth of the Clinic. Um, and he's talking about the the uh, social construction of madness. And that it, what he's basically saying is that the powers that be, those who hold power in a society can label as mad or insane or crazy those ideas which are properly insane, but also those that are dissident. And so you can actually use the social construction of madness is his argument in order to to exclude and marginalize dissident thought as opposed to just genuinely crazy stuff. So stuff that's actually sane or insightful or whatever, but outside of the Overton window can be classified by the powers that be as crazy. Well, absurd is one of those things as well. Who gets to determine what constitutes the absurd? And I don't know. We've talked about it before. I think there's an excellent – It's. I mean I don't think we can play copyrighted things, but it's, there's an excellent little clip from Saturday Night Live. And I don't know exactly what you have to type in to find it, but the it, sex ed – sex education enthusiast is probably what it is. And um, – it's this little skit they did a few years ago where occasionally, you know, they're absolutely hilarious and they're actually taking the piss out of this postmodern view. So sex ed is a sex ed enthusiast and he has to do his little disclaimer and he's got a funny little, you know, Western New York exaggerated accent. So he's comical. Haha, we make fun of, you know, the plebs. And then he's doing these little like chintzy, sexy, like sex ed you know, swinger party classes that he's teaching in like rundown hotels or whatever. And it's very seedy, but he's like, you know, so somebody urinates in a paper, uh, birthday hat, a cone hat, and then pours it down the back of somebody else and collects it in a second birthday hat. And that causes them to, to climax. Is that weird? Who's to say, and that's the running joke. Is that weird? Who's to say, and he gives increasingly weird examples in the whole classes you know is that weird who's to say so there's no ground upon which somebody could stand to say that's weird or not weird so therefore it's an arbitrary or mostly arbitrary imposition of people who have social and and uh cultural power to determine what the limits of acceptable behavior and thought discourse are um there's a dark side to this um is one, one, one <laughs> a few one wonders to what degree um, Foucault's Foucault's theorizing uh, in this direction um, was influenced by his desire to, perhaps to himself, justify some of the more seedy activities that he engaged in, like engaging in sex tourism in the Middle East, where the age of consent is much much lower. Yes, uh, there's there's a lot of reasons to believe that Foucault was involved in a lot of justifying of his. His uh, various, um, we'll call them pathologies, to kind of uh, paraphrase Nietzsche. Nietzsche famously said that most of the philosophers don't do philosophy. They, in fact, just rationalize their own pathologies. And then you have your most, our most famous Nietzschean of all, Michel Foucault, who's, you know, grows up gay into, you know, pretty violent uh, BDSM kind of stuff into seems young boys as it has come out, definitely signed the let's get rid of the age of consent laws in Paris petition in 1977, along with most of the other postmodernists. Um, his dad always wanted him to be a doctor. So the first thing he does is start bashing on the clinic. You know, he, there's a lot of like rebelling against the things that he was told he couldn't be or whatever and wanting to expand his potentialities of being, as he put it, um, which is a very Marxist 
idea as well. But you have this this whole thing going on with him that it's this very dark side going on. But you can also see that, you know, his philosophy gets turned into, well, kind of anything goes. And there is nobody that can stand outside and say it's just socially constructed what we consider to be acceptable or not. So, for example, with fat bodybuilding, which also has a dark side, we didn't write fat bodybuilding just because it's funny because it is funny. We wrote fat bodybuilding because, as we have seen repeatedly, even through the covid pandemic, which allegedly or apparently is, you know, being overweight or obese is a comorbidity for for covid makes it actually dangerous, uh, whereas most people don't run into much danger with it. Um, you have them supporting the so-called body positivity. You have, you know, all these <laughs> magazines like Shape, not just Cosmopolitan, but like Shape, which is a women's fitness magazine, putting a big fat woman on a cover saying this is the future of fitness and fitness and fatness. There's an obvious joke to be made there. And, you know, they, they run the pun. They do the whole thing. And it's like this is going to, you know, this is going to kill people. <laughs> it, it, it turns out that healthy at every size is the exception not the rule of being obese it is possible to be obese and generally you know well off at least for some period of time but it is the exception not the rule and uh it's generally the case that it's not healthy and so you have the same kind of thing we wrote the paper fat bodybuilding to bring that up to point out that there is this i mean as i, I called peter bogosian one day when we were thought of the idea and it was like we before we thought of the idea, it was like we really have to hit this journal fat studies I found. I remember telling him and he was laughing. He's like, ha, 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 fat studies. And I was like, and that's I remember saying it's like and that right there is exactly why there are 30 million people in this country waiting to find out that fat studies even exists. And they're going to laugh when they do because it's preposterous. And um, the point of fat bodybuilding was to expose that. So this idea that. It's merely a social construct that we have a sport for bodybuilding where we look at people who go to the gym, engage in crazy, crazy weightlifting and other fitness-related activities to build muscle, which is known to be hard, to shape their muscles, to get every tiny little – like weird little lifts to get every little strand on every little muscle at its exact proportion, etc., starving themselves, super careful diets, et cetera, to, to really get down to that super chiseled, you know, 3% body fat, not to say it's even necessarily healthy. I'm not making that claim, but there is, it takes a shitload of work to achieve that. It takes sitting on your couch with Doritos to become fat. It takes no work. And so I ran into this line that said it takes a lot of time to build a fat body. It takes even more time to build a politicized fat body. And I, in one of their oh. academic papers, I think that's by Labesco, but I get their names mixed up. That might be Bacon, Lindo Bacon, but also Linda Bacon, but sometimes Lindo Bacon. That's this whole thing. I made. I laughed about that on Rogan last time. I went, not the, the most recent time, but the time I went on in the George Floyd days. Um, Lindo Bacon. Um, but anyway, one or the other. So there's this politicized fat body, though. I was like, this is absolutely ridiculous. This is the funniest thing in the world. So we're going to do fat bodybuilding, obviously, is what we're going to do. We have this guy that's lend us his name to do the project, Richard Baldwin. He's actually a bodybuilder. It's perfect. Like he's literally like Mr. Northern Hemisphere from the 70s, 78 or something. He's huge, stacked guy. He's in his 70s now, totally ripped. And it's like, I'm sorry, you know, Jeff Cole or whoever else. It is patently different to build fat versus to build muscle. And it's also patently ridiculous to have a non-competitive competition 
that is literally an internal contradiction, which is what we said that fat bodybuilding would be. It would be, you know, because <laughs> it has to be a sport to qualify to be in the sport, but it can't be a sport because there's competition. So we had to like thread this needle and like give some goofy philosophical argument about what sport really represents. The whole thing is absurd, but it, 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 it is... also exposes this dark side. And so there's a lot going on there. Yeah. There's an apparent contradiction that uh, confuses a lot of people, um, and that contradiction concerns, um, well, double standards. Um, so on the one hand, um, there are no standards, no no objective standards, we should say, uh, pertaining to what constitutes justification, uh, sufficient proper justification for the production of knowledge. Um, on the other hand, there are definitely topics that you should not investigate, you should not research certain conclusions, you should not arrive at, uh, that science shouldn't arrive at if science knows what's good for it, if science doesn't want any trouble. And this is an interesting um, uh, kind of kind of demonstration of, of doublethink that's taking place. Um, is there is they, there like a method to that madness? Is that like where investigating that where what you can't speak about as opposed to what you can speak about or what you can justify? Is that is that somewhere where we could see that there's a a method or some sort of ground on which this process or this ideology is is working? As, as, as far as I can see, it's entirely opportunistic. You know, people laugh at Jordan Peterson. Oh, there's no such thing as a postmodern neo-Marxist. Don't you know that Marxism is modern and postmodernism is postmodern and these things contradict? What what's what's neglected in this consideration is that the people who he calls postmodern neo-Marxists, which I think is just a, a belabored way of saying intersectionalists, um, these are people who take radical modern ideas. Uh, they they have they have a picture in their heads of, of the world the kind of world that they want to see, and they strategically apply um, postmodern uh, postmodern principles wherever convenient, but don't apply it consistently across the board. And Patricia Hill Collins, who's kind of the the central um, philosopher, I think, in, in intersectionality. I know I know people uh, talk about um, you know Angela Davis and bell hooks, and especially Kimberly Crenshaw. Since Crenshaw was the one who came up with the term intersectionality, but really it was it was Collins in her 1990 book uh, Black Feminist Thought who crystallized the epistemology um, that would come to define intersectionality and, and subsequently the entire progressive left. And in a separate paper, I don't remember if it was in this book or if, if it was in a separate paper. She was talking about how uh, postmodern uh, ideas should be applied strategically um, over the course of, of their praxis. And it's in this sense that they can properly be called postmodern neo-Marxists and, and how this contradiction gets resolved. Um, you, 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 you have the beautiful picture in your head that you want to arrive at, even if it means uh, undermining epistemic standards to arrive at it. When somebody criticizes you for not satisfying those epistemic standards, then um, you, that's when you pull out the, the postmodern arguments for, for actually those, these objective standards don't really exist. Um, and then when and then when somebody uh, starts engaging in research, uh, objective research, pretty 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 good research, that contradicts some of your own cherished beliefs, um, then you draw out the modernist. Oh, this is this is evil. We can't allow this. Uh, this contradicts our, our our beautiful world. This is objectively bad research. What, what what's mar modernist about that? The uh, modern part, utopian, the the utopian part, and the opposite. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah. Uh, 
the goal to have the utopian vision. So yeah, the strategery is really the kind of unifying principle here. Um, you know, so it was actually through um, Crocodile's videos that we were speaking about earlier, where I first realized that, that Alan Sokol had brought to prominence a woman named Kelly Oliver from the the late 80s. She wrote a paper and she explains that the that they've reached a point by 1989 when she wrote this paper that, that we're no longer needing to be concerned with true theories or false theories, but rather we only need to worry about strategic theories. And so what you actually have, the guiding principle is an underlying self-serving double standard that, um, you know, everything's up for grabs, just like we, we were just saying, everything's up for grabs except the stuff that cuts down on their project. And of course, I see that the root of that is ultimately, this is the epistemic application, if you will, of repressive tolerance. You know, Herbert Marcuse's grand vision from 1965, where movements from the left shall be tolerated and movements from the right will not be tolerated whatsoever. And that's gonna extend not just to the realm of action, but also to the to the realms of, of word and thought. And uh, he says, in fact, that it's pre-censorship censorship and even pre-censorship but it's justified because the whole of the world is already censorious against leftist agendas so we have to if you will to use kind of the woke parlance level the playing field by doing this back in reverse so i see this this very self-serving double standard um as the bottom of it but then if we go you know or as close to the bottom of it because really the ultimate bottom is what what Crocoduck just said, the ultimate bottom of this is that they have their utopian vision. They see in their mind the world that they believe they are going to create. This is ultimately Marxist theology, by the way. They, as subject, have envisioned the thing they want to bring into objective reality. And it's all just how do I achieve that? Because anything that's limiting their subjective vision as it's attempted to be brought into reality is some social relation under their theory that is limiting the range of their subjectivity or of other people's subjectivity that therefore has to be deconstructed or dismantled or broken through one way or another so that they can bring their utopian vision into into reality. The name for that vision currently under the existing woke movement is justice, social justice more generally, but there's an infinite different numbers of kinds, gender justice, racial justice, climate justice, health mm -hmm. justice. Mm -hmm. There's justice for everything. There's probably nutrition justice. So there's linguistic justice or citational justice. What it actually means is bringing their vision into the world, their utopian vision into the world completely unhindered. And so everything is organized around pushing and uh, promoting that vision. So anything that might get in its way, for example, actual objective rigorous research is going to be criticized on grounds that it holds up, you know, white supremacist ways of knowing that exclude others. There's some problematic that has to be brought to bear so that people will find it to be less credible than it actually is um, or that only a bad person would possibly believe it or whatever else. And so it's ultimately that utopian vision of a perfected world that only they in their critical consciousness possess that is their guiding principle. In other words, faith is their guide. They have an absolute faith that they can recreate the Garden of Eden and get us back into it, which is our natural birthright. And you think I'm exaggerating, but I could read to you directly from Marcuse's 55 book, Eros and Civilization, where he says the goal of his activism is to get back into the Garden of Eden. And the way that we do it is by taking a second bite from the tr fruit of the tree of knowledge. 
And so it's quite literally that they believe that their birthright is to create the kingdom of God on earth, that they alone have the consciousness to produce it. And anything that stands in their way is therefore demonic or evil or in need of destruction because it's actually the greatest possible inhibitor of the good. And it seems like what they end up producing is justification and argument, training. They don't – if the Industrial Revolution and science created cups and cameras and all this stuff, what this stuff is doing doesn't seem to be anything other than discourse. It doesn't seem like they create anything other than papers and meetings and talking and policy maybe and and then you know more words. Do they create anything – positive have you guys I'd seen like, that I'd, I'd like to make a comparison to cancer and <laughs> <laughs> so it's fitting just hear me out with <clears throat> cancer what cancer does is okay in your body you have differentiated cells and what that means is that different cells in different locations they they act differently they serve different functions the cells that compose your brain are not the same as the cells that compose your liver and those in turn are not the same as those which compose your skin they, they all, they're all different. They're all heterogeneous. What a cancer does is uh, one, of, one, of, one of its hallmarks, uh, there, there's, literally, there's literally a paper called The Five Hallmarks of Cancer, and there's a, uh, there's a follow-up to that that has another couple of them. Uh, every oncologist in America has read it. But um, one of the defining properties of a cancer is its lack of differentiation. So, so what the cell does is – what the cancer does is it grows inside of your – um, as, as it divides into many cells and grows inside of your body, is it's not just a, a, a lump of, you know, you have a liver cancer and it's, you know, here are m more liver cells and they're all weird. And it's not like that. The cells have lost their differentiation. They become cells that, that look like, um, they look the way that cells do before they be become specialized. Um, so they're, they're like darks or Sith stem cells in a way. Yeah. Like, I, I, that's a good way of putting it. Um, and this lack of different, you know, it grows and grows and it grows. And you have this lack of differentiation. And eventually, um, the organs and the tissues, they, they lose their ability to function because they've been taken over by these cells that don't do anything. Um, Except make more of themselves or convert others into them. I guess they don't yeah. even convert anything. They don't have the power to do that. They they only have the power to recode themselves. Is that all the, these? They they, they have they have a few powers actually. It's oh. it's actually creepy. And and the, the more you look at these uh, these hallmarks, the more uh, comparisons you can draw. Like like one of the things that cancer cells do uh, is this thing called angiogenesis. And what it does is it sends out signals to your blood vessels, and it basically hijacks the blood vessels in order to redirect them to create new ones. You know, this nasty um, suboptimal vasculature to feed the cells oxygen. And, you know, I, I kind of look at the diversion of resources towards uh, institutions and bureaucracies and individuals who don't produce anything uh, for the society who kind of just grow and grow and grow. And and I, I, I'm trying not to be too much of a dick, but it, it, there is there is something to this cancerous um, cancerous analogy. You don't mm -hmm. have to feel like too much of a dick because they actually have a paper they wrote in right, 2016. The virus. Yeah, the virus. Yeah, well, 
if you've read the the women's studies as a virus paper in the middle of it they actually say that some viruses cause cancer and that's okay because cancer represents true transformative change and of course transformative is one of their you know utopian watchwords uh so they compare themselves to cancer so you don't have to feel too much like a dick another thing that cancer cells are extremely successful at doing is masking themselves from the immune system in a, in a healthy situation your body's actually producing precancerous cells more or less all the time and your immune system's going along and identifying them and picking them off so you don't end up having these other you know proliferation problems that become tumors or other forms of cancer that get out of control and eventually go through the stages of metastasis and kill you or shut down your organs or whatever other problems they cause but uh can- cancer cells tend to be extremely good at also masking themselves from the immune system once they get to a certain level of development and you see this exact phenomenon happening with the woke as well. Uh, they are extraordinarily good at putting themselves off as people who just care about the right issues in the right way and that they're nice, uh, you know. That they're helping Jonathan society. They're building it up. They're making us more healthy. Yeah, that they are, they are, they're ones that are actually solving the problems of society. But as for, you know, drawing off this metaphor, it is correct. They don't do anything except try to – this is where the one place that the metaphor kind of breaks down, but it doesn't really because, like you said, they can't convert – Cancer cells don't convert other cells. They just grow and multiply. Viruses do, however, infect other cells and continue. Uh, and so both of these metaphors are valuable at the same time because the only thing that I can discern that the, the woke ideology does is tries to create converts. The essential underlying belief of the faith is that when everybody who's still alive is of sufficient developed consciousness, then the revolution is going to proceed correctly and history is going to unfold toward its utopian end. And so the only thing they actually know how to do is to hijack institutions to turn them into woke-making institutions. They hijack the teaching of math so that the social justice lesson or the communist lesson, if it's in Maoist China or uh, Soviet Russia, so that the lesson becomes – it's like a social justice lesson – tucked into mathematics instead of you know john goes and buys 13 bananas and for every banana he buys three oranges how many fruit did did john buy kind of a math there's a loss of differentiation there exactly now the question Hmm. will be you know everything looks the same the the math class looks the same as the english class looks the same as the feminist studies everything looks the same Including also, we talk about the different classes, but also the Christian church, the Catholic church, the Buddhist mosque, or Buddhist temple, the the Islamic mosque, the synagogue, all looks the same. All it does is reproduce again and again and again this ideology using, like if you have a a liver cancer, the cells came from liver, you can tell that they came from liver, etc., even though they're no longer liver cells, it's loss of differentiation, and it's located there. So what you're going to have then is people, you know, dressed up like priests, Mm -hmm. but teaching this other religion, or you're going to have people uh, acting like math teachers, posing as math teachers, but teaching this religion. And it's like the Soviets literally would have, you know, if John, you know, I guess it's Ivan now or whatever, you know, kills five five dirty capitalists, <laughs> you know, whoever else kills 15 for every five he killed. How many dirty capitalists did we kill today? And dirty capitalists shows up, you know, repeatedly. And you actually can see this from the old Soviet and, and, and Chinese Maoist mm-hmm. Chinese math education books. You're seeing the same thing now. It's like, well, we're only going to do mathematics in order to understand how its relevance to social justice. The, you know, we're going to we're going to frame out every word problem in terms of some 
you know, whether it's critical race theory based or queer theory based or whatever, or even anti-capitalist old school Marxist based uh, propaganda tool, every single thing will have to become just a lesson at this. And part of that is because of this undifferentiation. And part of it's actually because the people who take up this theory literally become useless for anything else because they become obsessed with this theory and don't learn anything else. They, It's no surprise also that generally speaking, there are some exceptions to this, but relatively few. Um, the people who become theorists with the capital T are usually rhetorically savvy um, upper end of mid-range intelligence and abysmal at mathematics. They're, they're mathematically completely illiterate. Uh, it's very, very, very common. And so what you end up with is just to, to be a dick, people who don't know how to do anything except be activists, hijacking everything to turn everything into making more activists. It's and true. this, the cancer metaphor and the virus metaphor are both perfect for this. Yeah. And one of the things that concerns me in addition to this is that I fear eventually this is going to provoke an autoimmune response. Um, if, if it's not the cancer that kills the body, it will be the autoimmune disease, the, the fascism that comes to replace it. Oh, the F word. Yeah. It's really how, scary. How would fascism um, be the uh, pill or the anti-pill to this? Because well, there, there, there is no fascist takeover um, without there first being uh, a, a serious communist attempt uh, at takeover. There is no autoimmune disease without there first being the disease. It's the um, case. Um, the, the vacuum of legitimacy is where the fascists come in. People become desperate for a solution to the problems that were created by the attempted communist takeover. And eventually, nobody seems to have solutions. Nobody seems to be willing to take a strong enough stand to actually stop the people creating the problem. And then along comes somebody who says, I have a plan. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, the, and then I alone can fix it, as people tried to charge Trump with. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I over so, it's going to get dark here <laughs> over over my trip to um, to Arizona in, in December last year. I had this idea. I wanted to make sure I understood about National Socialism and its relationship to woke. So I was like, well, I better read Hitler. So I read Mein Kampf, and at the beginning, he's just like the Marxist, the Marxist, the Marxist. The guy's really mad about the Marxists. He says the Marxists made him crazy. Like, arguing with the communists flipped Hitler's lid. And I'm like, that's relatable content. And then it is. And then he's like, and then I realized that the communists are the Jews. And then you're like, uh-oh, it's getting dark. And mm -hmm. then he gets into this whole rant. He says, you can't merely, and all the communists do is they tear down. They refuse to recognize that they have their own Weltanschauung, their own worldview. They refuse to recognize this. They refuse to. And they, But it's a, it's one that's just destructive. It, all it does is tear down. All it does is, is destroy. What people need is a positive vision. And this is where your fascist, scary autoimmune disorder comes in. And he's like, I have one. Hardcore folkish German nationalism to restore German pride on the world stage. Hardcore weirdo race Aryanism that he infuses into the German nationalist pride thing. And like the 11th chapter is where he gets into the race stuff and it's like, whoa, that's dark. Um, and so you can see where he's – this exact process is chronicled. If you're studying that as a as an article of history, you can see that the, the Marxists were trying to take advantage of the, the dilapidation and the situation in Germany following World War One, and even preceding World War One, And then this guy comes along and he's like, this is my struggle. I'm in a fight with the Marxists every day and they're really pissing me off. And then I realize they're all Jews. And by the way, 
you know, here's this race ideology tied to German nationalism. We're going to renew the country and that's going to give somebody give people something to hold on to. And we're going to fix this problem. And that's where it comes in. And so this is where somebody needs to be, you know, where we all need to realize that the autoimmune reaction is possible, but it's also avoidable. And it's avoidable by people being willing to stand strong against the communism clearly while supporting broadly liberal principles like Americanism or American values or Lockean liberalism or whatever it happens to be. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the Locke-Jefferson axis of liberal values uh, in this regard. And I think most uh, most Americans and Canadians, at least, probably most Westerners still are. Uh, but somebody has to, and many people really, not any individual, need to become like champions of freedom and and liberty to prevent that autoimmune backlash from coming. Uh, I'm, I'm very concerned about it because uh, you I can may, see the mechanism coming. Just to kind of re, uh, retell the story, the, um, the communist has a uh, utopian vision that mm -hmm. it then enforces on everybody else and turns everybody else into uh, promulgators of this utopian vision. But what it ends up creating is a, is a cancerous, uh, undifferentiated mass that's just leaching uh, resources from the body that it, that it has infected. The body's immune response with regard to fascism is to create a counter utopian uh, vision of, of, a, of another body, of a, of a unified body that then can destroy this cancer and become strong, like this Aryan man or whatever Mussolini was preaching. There's this, uh, there's this counter unified, but again, it's very narrow, it's very yes. unifying, and it will destroy anything that's not like it. So it's, it's a counter cancer. And so what you're proposing is uh, a liberalism or these broad values that allow for differentiation, that allow for yes. different roles in society, different... Yes, exactly. Ways yes. of thinking. Yes, liberalism is not, not defined... In this term, but 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 one of the characteristics that follows from its, its definition, which is its methodological individualism, is its pluralism, its toleration for pluralism, um, and this includes a pluralism of ideologies, which means that you know there there are going to be um, some autoimmune uh, things here or there. There are going to be some cancerous things here or there. But mm -hmm. the point is, they're not going to take over the body. You hold them at bay, and everybody gets to remain differentiated. Every, everybody um, gets to go perform whatever role or function they they feel they want to perform. And um, you you yeah, exactly. You maintain the differentiation. There was this brilliant, um, well, not brilliant, like this anti-brilliant response uh, that I saw on Twitter because Nazis was trending on Twitter and there was a couple of different sources of why some people are calling everybody involved in this protest against the totalitarianism that is uh, shaping Canadians response to uh, or the Canada government response to the pandemic. And there's this big protest going on and a lot of people are saying, well, there's Nazis there and they'll pick up one picture of uh, a Confederate flag or one swastika and they say if one person, somebody was writing, several people were writing variations of this. If you have a dinner party and you invite 50 people, and one person is a Nazi, then you have 50 Nazis. So that, that rhetorical trick of casting everybody who has the association with that one signifier as Nazis is, a, um, is kind of a wokish response of causing 
collapsing all the differentiation in that in order to cast it out or or to denigrate the yeah. whole thing. So and it's and it's absurd because how, how are they going to respond when you point out okay this one person at the dinner party is a Nazi? What about that person over there wearing a trans flag? Is everybody now supporting trans? Is the Nazi supporting trans? Mm-hmm. Are are these Nazi supporting trans rights? Are these Nazi supporting gay rights? Are they you know, you, you, they, they, you're exactly right. They don't recognize the differentiation of individuals. Um, the liberal is capable of recognizing this and is capable of, of distinguishing between, you know, okay, people, people are different. People have different characters. They're going to, they're going to fall to different ideologies, um, and that's okay. Um, but yeah, it's it's exactly as you described it, Benjamin. So since we're being good and controversial, we'll just take this a, a slight step further. So the, in terms of controversy, uh, the, the, the definition, the meaning, I should say, of the word Islam, so now we're comfortable, right, is submission. And so the idea of, of Islam, kind of its basic nut, with nuts and bolts being the, the reference here, of what it's about is this, with submission to Allah comes, you know, the good life. So everybody is to submit to Allah and Allah's will as recorded, say, in uh, the Quran or the Hadith or whatever else. And so what you actually have within communism is what, what Marx was talking about is the need for man to awaken to the fact that he's social man. And social man is sometimes, because it's from German, translated as socialist man. In other words, that, that man needs to realize that he's as George Costanza would have it, part of a society. And so there's these huge um, kind of social contract obligations on people to operate in this kind of social, uh, it's almost like the Borg from Star Trek. Everybody's got to be kind of on the same page with regard to what society means and what's expected out of people. So what you have is this kind of social environment that is the collective, that Marxism, generally speaking, including woke, what their idea is that the utopia arrives when everybody reaches a sufficient level of consciousness of this state of affairs so that they have submitted to the social collective of society, where man and society become co-continuous. There's just like the subject and object are meant to be dialectically synthesized and become co-continuous. Man and society are supposed to become dialectically synthesized as man meant to live in society, man meant to live in a social order. And so what you actually have is a fundamentalist religion that believes that when everybody submits to the uh, not just submits, though, but we'll start with submits to the will of the collective, which itself is a collective that has all been conscientized into this particular view of what a social environment should look like. Then the utopia will spontaneously emerge through the dialectical process, and then we're going to live in it. So what you have is actually collectivist totalitarianism is at the absolute root of this because the entire faith is based on we don't get to where we want to go until everybody is 100% on board with the collective. And so what you end up with is this absolutely absolute inability to tolerate that which they identify as as outsider enemy to that. That's somebody who hasn't submitted yet. That's somebody who has not put themselves before the will of God, uh, as it were. But for Marx, there is no God. Man in himself replaces deity. Man creating himself through the processes of history, um, which is the authorship of man creating himself. Mm-hmm. It's a very circular, uh, faith-based project. And so 
when you see, you know, you have a Nazi at the table, so everybody's now a Nazi, they have to see it that way because what you have is the potential for that group of, say, 50 people to become contaminated with something that's outside of what the collective holds. So it has to be absolutely, absolutely vigorously stamped out. It has to be absolutely vigorously excluded. And it Uh, works in the opposite direction when the most radical person in the woke group comes to define the entire group. So everybody has to be on board with the most radical uh, version. So they have to. So the one super duper woke person, everybody has to agree with them or else they are cast out. And and you see the shrinking in this. Because anyone else is leaving some status quo on the table. The easiest way to see this is where the feminists killed themselves. I don't mean like physically. I mean, feminism gave rise to queer theory, gave rise to the trans thing. And now men claiming to be trans women or claiming to be women, period, have destroyed feminism or basically everything feminists ever tried to hope for. Why? Because if they try to stop it, say, yeah, gender is a social construct, so there's your your feminism, but sex is not, then that's just them being conservatives. That's just them leaving status quo on the table. So the more radical person wins every time. So this isn't just a, a faith that's got no limiting principles. It's one that's intrinsically inimical to limiting principles, which is why characters like Lenin, who are willing to go all the way, or like Mao, who are willing to go all the way, eventually rose to power uh, in those circumstances, because all they had to do was accuse everybody successfully, obviously. It's a risky move, but all they had to do was step up and accuse everybody of being, you know, performing half measures or or not not being fully committed, harboring bourgeois or conservative or counter-revolutionary values, right-wing values, uh, not being willing to take the step was proof, et cetera, et cetera. And when you find the right characters who know how to play that game, what we're seeing with that now is this kind of decentralized kind of social the cancel culture, social murder movement rather than a physical murder movement with a with a, megal- a megalomaniac in charge of it. Um, when mm-hmm. those people are always going to be able to rise, so the the they they don't also realize their danger in that regard. But what you you have to understand is that whoever is genuinely able to articulate the wokeness the most is the only non-Nazi at the table. Everybody else is a Nazi. Everybody else for them is a Nazi because they're. It sounds like a great kind of dinner game or uh, one of those uh, evening games. You know, everybody gets their woke card and figure out who's the uh, Nazi when it turns out. Yeah, it's called the circular firing line. Why do you think they get so uh, so traumatized at the thought of going to meet their families at Thanksgiving, sitting at the same dinner table with everyone else? Mm -hmm. And that that erosion of anything other than a political point of view um, makes people, well, it isolates them, but it also, uh, it, it, that disrupts the social fabric that would cause us to not go in the direction of fascism. The The way that we not slip into fascism is this social fabric, this tolerance, but also people uh, being productive members of society. And if one by one uh, there's this casting out of people, I don't know if uh, – I'm sure that society could still function – Without these members of uh, – without universities, without the uh, chattering class, without media. But at this point, we're in a very – we're in a very uh, difficult or dangerous situation where the uh, legitimate institutions are now creating a vacuum of legitimacy. The question being, how do we articulate a naturalist philosophy, a humanist philosophy, 
um, for people to constantly, people who are against wokeness, constantly go back to the roots of what they are for, not just anti. What, what are we for, not just anti? And I, and I see both of you guys doing good work in that direction. Yeah, you raise, you raise an important point, Benjamin. Um, we can't define ourselves entirely in terms of what we oppose, otherwise we're nothing. Um, you know, the, the, we, I hate to I hate to give Hegel credit because um, I despise Hegel, but <laughs> you 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 don't want to adopt the slave morality, the slave identity. Um, you don't want to define yourself entirely in terms of that which you oppose. You have to have some principles of your own that stand independently of that. And this necessitates on our part, I think, um, cultural production and intellectual production. And uh, I've been I've been engaged in some projects to that end. Um, And I I hope to. uh, Well, on the the intellectual end, end at least on the the philosophical end, I've been engaged in that on that project. But for the cultural production end. Um, that's going to require uh, uh, substantial contributions from a lot of people. Um, what do you mean? I, Are you doing uh, like some sort of uh, trippy light show, laser light show in the <laughs> desert? Yep, putting it on just for you, Benjamin. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. No, I, by by cultural production, I mean works of art and and works of the types of discourses that are that are going to be developed um, that don't necessarily make reference to that which we're against. But which, through their ethos, um, communicates values that we hold, and which, because we hold them, and uh, and and these these values are in opposition to woke values, will implicitly serve as a kind of countercultural force. Basically, what we need is a counterculture, um, and that counterculture has to have uh, an, an associated philosophical system with it. Um, I've been working on such a system, and I'll be working on it. For the rest of the year, I've got videos coming out to kind of elaborate on it. But do you have any uh, tips, tricks, or teases about this ethos? Well, like, uh, uh, like everybody, everybody's going to have to choose their own. You know, as as a liberal, you know, I recognize that there's a diversity of characters, and that this diversity is not the product of uh, people being stupid or people being immoral. You know, some people naturally are going to tend toward. Um, different political ideologies, different different values based on their character, based on their temperaments. Um, this is kind of a Humean view of things. You know, I, I view I view conservatives as being driven by the fear of decay, and progressives as being driven by the disgust toward injustice. So you know, fear and disgust being the mm. the drivers of politics. No wonder it's such an ugly show. Um, mm. Fascism, I think, is is the product of despair, and. Um, Communism, I think, is is the product of uh, vanity. Um, we could we could go into all of these in, in in detail, but kind of the the point I'm trying to bring out is you have you have different characters, and um, the ethos that works for me might not necessarily be the ethos that works for you. Um, what matters is that we have systems and institutions in place that allow for um, the continued differentiation of the body politic. Hmm. What does that look like? It looks like me having my point of view, which which uh, is actually going to rely on um, some Spinozist philosophy. Actually, uh, that's 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 in the works. Um, James having his thing, you having your thing, every, everybody having their own thing that coexists in 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 an environment where critical discourse can take place and where cultural production can can remain differentiated. I, I, I think the greatest mm. opposition 
um, to woke folk, at least on the cultural side of things, is maintaining differentiation, maintaining the plurality of opinions um, without allowing ourselves to be taken over by anything they have to offer. When they say that we have to inject um, their ideologies, their 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 stuff into our subcultures, um, you know, people are allowed to hold those beliefs, but it, it it can't come to be a defining property of those beliefs because if it does, then then we lose differentiation. Mm. Like uh, feminism and gaming, it's okay for a gamer to be a feminist and still game, but once a feminist starts to s- declare that gaming needs to be more feminist, or we need to interpret gaming according to a feminist lens, then they're kind of uh, they're stepping over into fundamentalism, and that's something exactly. that is there a repressive tolerance principle with regard to metastasizing uh, fundamentalism, and how does that implemented carefully? Um, so not repressive tolerance, but rather Karl Popper's paradox of toleration. Um, we don't tolerate, um, attempts by cancer to metastasize. If you have a benign cell that's undifferentiated and has its own thing going on, but it's not spreading, it's not recruiting, um, signals in order to make itself grow. It's not hijacking, um, you know, vasculature in order to, to, to siphon away resources from the rest of the body. You know, as long as long as that's what's going on, don't don't worry about the benign cells. It, it can sit there. It can it can do its own thing. Surgery might not necessarily be worth it uh, to extract it. Um, but if it if it does become cancerous, then um, it's time to apply some radiation therapy. And it just so happens that I've been building a little nuke that might help uh, accomplish that task. But a targeted direct beam that people that just hits the right cell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the thing is with uh, some of these metaphors, some of this discourse, of course, um, a culture to, to be an artist, to be a communicator, to be a, a pundit, either, uh, you know, to run a YouTube channel, you need to be in a state of growth. You need to be finding people that agree with you. You're spreading your message. So in a way, you are re- trying to reproduce your ideas and, uh, you know, every group is going to be recruiting. Every group is going to be um, right. But not all metastasizing. Yeah, exactly. So there, so there has to be a a value set to to decide what is a negative growth, what's a positive growth, and that has to do with, um, I think, some sort of positive cultural value. Getting back to a standard of saying this is crap, this is great, and this is somewhere in between. I think that there has to be some sort of standard to decide that precedes declaring whether a group is bad or not. Like, what are they producing? And what what is that based on? Um, I mean, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, that's ultimately, you know, the space in which all of this has kind of come up is that, and that's really, you know, what this naturalist nuke that uh, Krakaduk can talk about some more if he wants, uh, is really targeting and that's why you see so many religious people stepping in right now and saying that we have to get back to God and we have to get right with God, et cetera, because what people are looking for is some kind of a uh, very objective ground that they can stand on that says this is right, this is wrong, this is dangerous, this is not. This is when public opinion should be able to step in and say we need to contain this, and this is when public opinion says, well, you know, do what you want to do, and or this is acceptable or whatever the other ranges are. And that question of how do you ground these things in an era in which, you know, we are a a couple of centuries out from the church having 
you know, just absolute hegemony in terms of grounding, you know, objective, well, really everything, whether it's values, whether it's epistemology, whether it's ontology, they've got, they, they had the corner on the market for a very long time. And then we're a couple of centuries out from that corner being questioned. And so, you know, having a, a naturalistic philosophy, for example, that into which even the religious paradigm can be fit or can be understood from without the people who are religious are, are perfectly fine to just take it as their religion. But it's the problem is that it's not working for everybody. But having a broad kind of naturalist position by which we can understand, you know, value positions, the meaning of existence, and, you know, uh, how we come to understand ourselves and then understand the world around us, so epistemology as well, uh, becomes kind of the the fuzzy question that has to be addressed. Um, mm-hmm. and, if, and, if you look oh. at uh, uh, just K through 12 education, it's all being taken over by a single ideology that's populating it. It's all, but the problem with that ideology is that it's focusing all the disciplines to look at and become social justice rather than if we go to a religious school, let's just say Catholicism is the ruling ideology, but allows for everything to be differentiated um, and included in it rather than focusing on everything is about learning your catechesis or whatever like that. So there, there was a, there's a vacuum of coherence or unity in Western liberalism where we differentiated without a unifying theory. And I think we got away from that unifying theory as far as we could without it snapping back into something like that. That's what I think is missing is the underlying uh, – what, what I would actually term, having read some of John Henry Newman now, what I would actually term an underlying theology in kind of a very broad and generic sense, um, and that ultimately being a kind of you know meta-philosophy, if we want to get really technical, I guess, that's stringing together things like ontological questions, epistemological grounding, you know, axiological framework and all of these is sociological uh, theory as well, um, which religions, I think, evolved to do, you know, at a, at a basic level rather successfully through their, their basically long endurance with large numbers of people. Uh, but the problem is that as the Enlightenment came through, like you said, that fundamental grounding got thrown into uh, doubt. And unfortunately, uh, we've we've had this very subjectivist, they call it dialectical, but very subjectivist um, mentality kind of fill in. This theology is filled in. It's, you know, we've we've got cancer working. I don't want to have too many metaphors on the table, but it's very cuckoo bird. <laughs> it's like it's come in and kicked the other mm-hmm. eggs out of the nest, mm-hmm. uh, and it's the only one in the game. But this is horrible, ugly thing that doesn't do what it's supposed to do and is ultimately a parasite and 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 that's that's ultimately what marxism has done and always does do and i think people would resonate with that metaphor of course uh which is why digging into that philosophy and having that level of intellectual and cultural production on our terms that creates the competitor that excludes that and exposes it for what it is like crocodile was talking about is such a such a crucial and and, and invaluable project that that people need to start taking up in a very serious way, which is why I get, I mean, of course, being liberal, I openly tolerate them at my own risk, the, you know, the kind of uh, post-liberal, whether it's neo-reaction or even the, uh, 
what do they call them, the Catholic integralists who want to go back to like a theocracy or whatever. Like, I want them doing their philosophical meandering, but I also realize that when I look at, you know, Popper's characterization, part of their philosophy is intolerance of things that are outside of that. And I think that's where you say, well, how are you going to tell? Like, there's your, there's a red flag, like our way or the highway. Keep an eye on that one. You know, is this thing a tumor that's now going to start hijacking blood vessels or is it just going to be over there, um, you know, being a bunch of cranks? And at some point when it starts to metastasize and carry on and and you start seeing a rapid growth in the number of people who are saying, no, this is the way it's our way or the highway, that that's where, you know, that thing has to be exposed and and, and uh, really undercut at the mm-hmm. philosophical level so that, you know, it doesn't present. Well, if, if those things populate the centers of government or the centers of knowledge production or the centers of media and decision making, then that's different than if they're just kind of one among many, right? This is one of the, yeah, that's generally what Popper's talking about as the kind of exclusion principles. Um, when is it time to be intolerant of something intolerant? And it's not even always. He says when it, you know, it, it is absolutely intolerant when it cannot be persuaded by reason or rational argument or evidence of the contrary. Uh, and when public opinion is no longer sufficient to keep it in check, especially if it gets toward the point where they're threatening to bring out the pistols. That's when you must be intolerant against intolerance. And clearly we see much of that with the woke phenomenon. It's absolutely intolerant of other ideas. Public opinion is not sufficient to keep it in check because it's figured out ways to uh, be a parasite upon our best uh, characteristics like charity of argument and respectability Mm -hmm. and kindness and uh, caring for people who are underprivileged, etc. And it's it's rapidly growing and saying it's our way or the highway. But in general, it's, it's the same problem, same problem. And if we have lots of people kind of Working out, like Crocoduck was saying, you know, coming up with this kind of counter in various ways, countercultural movement. They're pushing for different kinds of art. They're showing, you know, what it means to be human in this era. They're delivering the the fundamental values and even you know answers to ontological questions and epistemological questions uh, in rigorous ways. Uh, within within the the context of what they're producing, then we're going to be leaning toward the road to recovery. But figuring out how to do that without being able, because we're not going. I I'm, I listen to the Christians. I, I spend a lot of time with Christians all the time, and a lot of them are we got to get back to God. We got to get back to God, and it's just not going to happen the way that they hope for. It's just there's, not realistic. Yeah, there's there's no going back. Um, the teeth have mm-hmm. already fallen out. They're not going to be replaced, so to speak. I'm sorry for all these all these. Uh, <laughs> Are we on is, horses now? Is that what it is? That yeah, we're, I mean tigers, maybe. Who knows? Okay. No, I mean, it, look, yeah. you lose you lose your teeth. They're not they're not going to grow back. I mean, once you're an adult, um, and it's it's kind of like that. Um, you know, religion used to play the role of the teeth. Just just bear with me here. Okay. We lost them. They're gone. They're not coming back. Uh, and you need you need to install. Um, I feel like such a dork for for using these metaphors. I'm going to stop. Just no, whatever no, no. James said. <laughs> go, go, whatever James go, 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 go. said. No, I well, was I mean, really hoping to hear that. Yeah, because uh, Crocodile, in, in your uh, naturalist nuke videos, which we plugged 
several times. The links will be in the description. Everybody should they're check really them out. They're really good. But you, they're really good. You you preempted the social constructionist um, talking point by. I, I, you should explain how you do this, but you say that science is actually natural. You, you, you go back and you show how, how what science is is a process that is always occurring by every basically volitional entity is, is participating in science. And so I wonder if we can bootstrap in that way this cultural matrix that includes charity, that includes uh, – tolerance to a certain degree that includes getting along, create, creating all these humanist or human activities, these non-scientific activities, if we can show that, that they are based on our nature. This is all natural to do this, and it's unnatural to stop that, or it's, it's counter-natural to act in a wokish way or something like that. Yeah, well, I, I would first caution by saying natural does not necessarily equal good. That's going to be the first thing that... Yeah, right, yeah, they're they're gonna ding you. They're gonna ding you for that. You just, you have to put it out there. Okay. Um, but there, I think there are resources available, and you know, for, for forthcoming videos on on the way um, a kind of revisionary Spinozism um, might be able to accommodate that. But Re- revisionary Spinozism. Spinozism. So, so the Spinoza, okay. the philosopher Spinoza. Yeah, spin uh, it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I have uh, I have some ideas for how he might be able to help us. Uh, in that regard, but when it comes to strictly the uh, the epistemological, the ontological, and the axiological uh, features of of our civilization, um, the naturalist nuke, as I've as I've developed it thus far, does have the resources to act in both an offensive and 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 defensive character uh, with respect to woke ideology. So, anytime you try to propose. Um, something contrary to the woke or try to say, no, this doesn't fall under the purview of the woke. You, you may not convert this. You may not take over this. Um, they're going to counter with something to the effect of, well, it's already been taken over because it's been situated within a culture that we're trying to liberate everybody from. It's, it's situated within discourses and institutions that um, are already causing a tremendous amount of suffering. And that's what it fundamentally is, and we're 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 just trying to liberate people from that from these circumstances. Um, and this is where a lot of people get stuck because you know how 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 do you contest that a lot of the things that they're that they're pointing to and saying this is socially construct like they 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 come armed with a whole bunch of arguments to to this effect. And one of the things that they've come prepared to try to take over um, is the scientific activity. The scientific activity is socially constructed. Um, science, this 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 knowledge production business that you engage in, that you think is objective, and that you think uh, precedes politics, actually, that that's that's all political, and therefore it's fair game for us to also go in and convert. Um, so the defensive aspect of the naturalist nuke says, actually, um, wait a minute, uh, there there are for science at its core is something that precedes the existence of politics. There's something about the development of representations of the world, models as I call them, something about the characteristics which define them, um, which are not beholden to any particular culture or social situation or politic. Or even and, being. You, you right. make the case. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. That's a that's a bit more on the radical side on my end. I, I I do offer a way out in video three. You can you can you can still restrict it to human beings without losing the the character of the nuke. But the big idea here is that science at its core is not a political phenomenon. 
you may adjoin political elements to it. And when you do that, you you introduce the circumstances under which Lysenkoism can thrive. And that's that's deleterious to everybody's well-being. Um, but at its core, the scientific activity isn't uh, isn't political. Um, so this is this is the defensive feature of the naturalist. Here is something that they may not claim. Here is something, you know, here here's a set of standards that we can apply um, when evaluating representations of the world. And that's that's huge. That's a, that's a big deal because now you can start describing the world um, as it is independently of, of political considerations or, or or social considerations. And this presents a serious challenge if it's, if it's sustained against woke ideology. That's the defensive side. On the offensive side, I have the criteria, the actual nature of the criteria that I've identified as constituting sort of the essence of scientific inquiry. And those criteria are what I call the big four, the big four operational criteria. It's a set of criteria that we can use to judge um, different representations of the world, including and especially woke representations of the world. And this is where I think um, a lot of the intellectual force um, is going to be able to come from because you're going to be able to subject things like critical theory, uh, you know, critical race theory, critical pedagogy, all, all of these things that are making uh, certain empirical claims about the world and uh, certain non-empirical claims, and, and we can get to those as well. You'll be able to subject those to the standards um, that are outlined by, by the naturalist nuke, the, the big four, and when it's found that they fall short, um, sort of show them for what they are, which is just – one of many competing ideologies that doesn't have anything special to it. Uh, it doesn't. It, it isn't actually supported by the types of values that we attach to representations of the world for our own well-being. Could you briefly uh, mention those four, the, the, those big four? Sure. So the first one is predictive accuracy and precision. Yeah. Uh, that's fairly straightforward. How well can you tell the future based on your model? Um, the second one is explanatory efficiency. So um, this one actually has two components, and those components are parsimony and consilience. I sort of wrap them both up uh, under the umbrella of efficiency because uh, they, they, they deal with the efficiency of our representations of the world at different scales. With parsimony, you're looking at an individual model or an individual hypothesis or, or whatever it is you're using to represent the world, um, and you're applying Occam's razor. You know, can can I can I explain? It, it, you know, it's 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 the metaphysicians would describe it as um, uh, multiplying entities uh, beyond necessity. That's what we're trying to avoid. We're trying to avoid the introduction of posits that are not necessary to sustain a model. Because otherwise, you're just sneaking stuff in there that doesn't need to be there. You're, yeah. um, and then on the other hand, on, on the other end, you have consilience, which is uh, how well do these different models cohere with each other? Um, you know, are we going to have to separate um, our our different um, models of the world into these distinct kind of islands of knowledge that don't have anything to do with each other, and and not have this kind of th this more efficient organization where they're all conjoined? So I'm I'm talking about consilience. I'm talking about conjoining them together um, into a single um, overarching uh, structure Body of knowledge. Of knowledge, yeah, mm -hmm. structure, yeah. 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 So that's explanatory efficiency. The third one is optimal flexibility, which is the theory is neither so rigid as to be immune to counterfactuals. You know, there's there's a, there's a counterfactual state of affairs in the world. Um, 
with respect to what the model is positing. Um, what are you going to do, model? And the model says nothing. It's what what I say is true, regardless of what the world has to say. Right? That's too rigid. And then on the other hand, you have something that's effectively that that's that's uh, too flexible. Something that's effectively unfalsifiable. And this is the model that's going to retroactively change um, its interpretation of whatever is observed in order to fit with the model. Um, and why so is that bad? That's bad because then it leads to a state of affairs where everything can trivially be said to be true. You can incorporate all observations, um, even contradictory sense ones. Of them. Yeah, yeah, you're just sensing. No, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, so that's that's optimal flexibility. And then the final, the fourth one is rational coherence or or internal consistency, um, alternatively. And that just means that uh, you want to minimize the amount of tension, the amount of contradiction that that your uh, representations contain. And, and if what, we, yeah. oh, you first. No, continue. Oh, I was about to say if we if we apply these standards to uh, woke ideology, um, well, you know, woke, woke ideology is not all empirical, as you as you know. A lot of it is very qualitative. There there are interpretive elements, there are historicist elements, there are phenomenological elements, and I think the 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 first step in any kind of um, in any, in any kind of uh, intellectual clash between those who are wielding the nuke and and woke folk um, is going to be to force them away from that qualitative realm and into the empirical realm. And it's here in the empirical realm where you can detonate the nuke. Um, so kind of to, to give you an illustration of what that might look like, you know, we can talk about uh, the way uh, lived experiences are talked about. So... Uh, let me think about how, how how to put this. I mean, I have a pretty good one that, okay. that, that nukes them on lived experience, which is the, the panic attack. I've trotted this out a number of times, and it, people really resonate with it. So you're having a panic attack. Something's happening. Your chest hurts. You can't breathe. You're freaking out. Feels like a heart attack. You go to the doctor. You go to the hospital. You roll in. You tell the person at the ER you know, the admissions desk, I have, I'm having a heart attack. They immediately throw you on a bed, bring you back, wheel you back down the hall, and the doctor comes and they start trying to hook up the EKG to you because now that's the realm of empiricism. Let's check your heart and see what's going on. And you say, no, 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 my lived experience is that I'm having a heart attack. Hit me with the paddles. Get the defibrillator and hit me. You're going to die. He's going to electrocute you and kill you or something, whatever it does. It's going to shock your heart and actually stop it because you're having a panic attack. You're not actually having uh, a heart attack. And so the EKG represents kind of metaphorically here then, you know, the injection of that empirical situation, the empirical uh, paradigm over the experiential paradigm uh, where it's a very like palpable thing where if, you know, you get this wrong you're asking the doctor to kill you. If you demand that the doctor defer to your lived experience over taking the step of gathering the rele- relevant empirical data, uh, your life is on the line. Yeah. Whereas, you know, once the doctor hooks up the EKG to you, immediately they're going to see you're not having a heart attack. This is not right. what's actually happening. What's right. actually happening is that you are freaking out and you might need a sedative, but you probably just need to chill out and breathe for half an hour. And, uh, 
Yeah. You know, and, maybe and, watch some cartoons. And what James is gesturing at here is actually a really serious philosophical problem called the problem of underdetermination, which is that for any given set of facts, there are a zillion different interpretations, often mutually contradictory interpretations for that set of facts. Uh, there's a difference between what you're experiencing, the, the rapid heart rates, and your interpretation of your experience, what, what that means. And that's a distinction that uh, has political application um, in terms of how we can you can counter, you know, lived experience kind of rhetoric. So, you know, let's let's say uh, let's say you're talking to somebody and, you know, they, they say uh, it's the lived experience of black Americans that racism is endemic at all levels of society. And so in the interest of compassion and equity, we have to use that presupposition as the filter through which social data is analyzed. Mm-hmm. Um and much of the force of this kind of viewpoint is purely rhetorical. If, if, you're, if you're found to disagree with it, then you'll be accused of erasing the voices of people of color in the space. And, of course, in the process of saying this, the, the ideologue who's confronting you is erasing the voices of truth-respecting voices in the space. But mm-hmm. that's neither here nor there. Uh, at the very least, leading questions um, will be posed to cast aspersions onto your character. Why don't you want the lived experiences of black people to play a role in inquiry? Do you think black people are just lying when they say they've experienced depression? You know, this this kind of shit. Uh, mm-hmm. The idea here being that you're a racist and the non-racist thing to do is to comply with this hostile takeover of your epistemological standards. Uh, as so many people have by now discovered, critical race theory, among other variants of critical theory, is less interested in justifying its beliefs via reason and evidence than with specious rhetoric that's been carefully calculated to enforce compliance. Mm-hmm. And the answer to these kinds of accusations is to invoke the problem of underdetermination. It's to force the ideologue to acknowledge that there's a difference between your experience of a phenomenon, like being approached and followed by a retail clerk the moment you enter a store, and your interpretation of that phenomenon, uh, e.g. they followed me because they don't want me to walk around their store unsupervised because they think I'm more likely to steal something because I'm black, right? Um, as opposed to an alternative explanation for that, like maybe they just wanted to make sure that you're properly taken care of or uh, that your decision to interpret that event in that particular way uh, might actually have something to do with your indoctrination into a way of thinking that encourages adherence to interpret all such interactions in the least charitable light. Mm-hmm. There's even a joke about that, right, with the feminism, and it's that, you know, something happens to everybody, women most affected. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so if you point this out, you know, the most likely rebuttal is you're going to you're going to hear something to the effect that everybody is an expert in their own experiences. We're all experts of our experiences. And, you know, you you contradicting this, you're you're they're misrepresenting you as gaslighting people into thinking that they've not experienced what they've in fact experienced. Um, but in reality, you're not denying anyone's experience, only their interpretation of it. Um, if everyone's interpretation of their experiences was incorrigible, then it would follow that, for example, white nationalists' interpretation of their own negative experiences with black people would be every bit as valid as the interpretations favored by the critical race theorist. Everyone's contradictory interpretations of their experiences would allow for the absurd state of affairs where all contradictory propositions are true. Um, so you know you could you could you could counter that as you, you know you, here's here's this argument hey uh, what you're proposing is absurd it doesn't work um, if you generalize it. Um, it's really funny that they're so caught in that too because it's an everyday experience that you like you know Benjamin you sent me a text and I you know didn't read the right 
you know, tone of voice that you had in your head when you typed the text. And now I think you said this like really rude thing, but really you were actually saying something very kind and I've just totally misinterpreted it. Sometimes we go months where we're not even friends now because of a total misunderstanding, misinterpretation. We didn't know what people meant one to another. Yeah. In other words, the interpretation of the experience that I, oh, he insulted me. You didn't insult me. You might even have been complimenting me or it might have been a neutral statement. It might have been a joke or whatever that wasn't even an off-color or inappropriate joke, but without the intonation or without other circumstantial facts that somebody might have missed or forgotten or like maybe they're sick or busy and something like they – or <laughs> believe you me – Sometimes you just read it wrong. Like you just, mm -hmm. or you, you typed something to me and you left out the word not by mistake. And then we have this massive miscommunication because it literally reverses the meaning of what you said. And you didn't know that you did it. I mean, there's so many things where our interpretation of an event is, I mean, it's literally an everyday experience that we run into conflict because we misinterpret something that somebody else did. But it's astonishing that if you try to suggest that you might be misinterpreting the experience that you had and that there might be a experience or an interpretation of that experience that doesn't put you into this, you know, injured or aggrieved or, or, you know, um, oppressed role, then, you know, the, then that might be a more valid interpretation. You know, maybe they didn't actually mean it or whatever. Or on the other hand, maybe they did and they're just an asshole and most people aren't. You know, mm -hmm. but no, it's always for them. that they, they seem to – this is what Christopher Hitchens said uh, is that the left's new style is that they basically the, – I can't remember the quote exactly. But they, they always know your motivation for everything you did and it's always the worst possible one. But it's also worst possible intersecting with most self-serving for their – agenda just and so, so exactly yeah. exactly so so they'll they'll follow up with a question like well you know who do you feel more compassion for who you know which interpretation are you going to support the people who you know we feel compassionate for or the ones who we presume you feel more compassionate for are you going to uh you know do you feel more compassion for oppressed black people or racist white supremacists because that's what's going to decide whose interpretations you'll favor and the correct reply to that is the, the the question of whether black people are oppressed is what's at issue in the first place. You can't use the lived experiences of black people as justification for the proposition that they're oppressed and then use their alleged oppression as justification for deferring to their lived experience. That's circular. Why should that matter, though? I mean, if rationality is off the table, if contradictions off the table, then there's no it, arguing with this. If, 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 if you're if you're dealing with a person who who doesn't care that they're contradicting themselves, then move on uh, with your life. There's there's no there's no point wasting time with that person. Yeah, but if they're controlling the universe, then <laughs> there's no getting away well, from them. <laughs> well, well, it, it 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 depends on the context of the conversation that you're having. If you're having if you're having shit flinging on Twitter, then fine, you're probably not going to get anywhere. But if you're having a conversation in real life, especially in front of other people, where they at least want to pay lip service to rationality um, in order in order to maintain a certain image, oh, we're reasonable, we're just asking for reasonable things, therefore you should you should support us, uh, this this is this forces them into a trap. You know, you, you taken together the, these obje these objections that I laid out that are that are appealing to the underdetermination of our beliefs the the absurdity of the kind of relativism being being proposed and the circularity when 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 you appeal to compassion um, that exhausts the rhetorical resources of these ideologues and those mm. are just the logical problems we we haven't even talked about you know empirical objections pertaining to black people's actual views um, 
as opposed to the views being attributed to them by woke folk. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we haven't even talked about several decades worth of psychological research into cognitive distortions and how certain types of simple so- social interactions can enforce conformity and compliance without anybody noticing. Um, but anyway, at, at this stage of, of this kind of conversation, they can be led to ask, you know, finally, when you, when you get them to ask the, the relevant question, by what standards do we decide which out of a potential number of interpretations of a given phenomenon, you know, how, how do we decide which one is the best? Uh, well, you, you already know my answer, Benjamin. I saw you writing it down. How do we decide? Uh, that uh, the everything is to be interpreted politically and everything that's political is to be interpreted personally and then just completely loop that over and over and over again until yeah, that's you to- win. That's totally, that's totally my view. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> no, my, my, my answer, you all know my answer by now. It's the big four. It's, it's, your view has to be situated within a model that's compliant with the big four. And, you know, what you've done in, in this instance is you've maneuvered the conversation away from justification in terms of compassion or proving that you aren't racist or or dubious appeals to the expertise yeah. of someone who relays their interpretations of what happens to them and moved it away from that and towards standards of justification that are used in all other modes of inquiry, thus holding critical race theory and other theories like this to the standards of scientific scrutiny, standards which by its very character, it's never going to be able to meet. And, and this, once people get hooked on that, then they get to start to build knowledge rather than collapse knowledge, right? They're, they're able to differentiate and, and move into different realms of knowledge production, biology, math, uh, arts, uh, rather than having to see everything through one lens. Right. Yeah, exactly. The reason why they're able to see everything through one lens from, you know, even even, you know, looking at all of these diverse things, the reason that the mechanism that allows them to to undifferentiate all of these different um, modes of learning and and, uh, modes of being modes of knowledge is the infinite flexibility of the kinds of um, the the kinds of frameworks that they're using. Yeah. And and so you, you, you have to force them away from the qualitative and the phenomenological and the historicist and interpretive frameworks whose infinite flexibility allows them to conclude whatever they want. You have to force them into a data-driven, empirical mode of inquiry governed by the standards of the big four. And, you know, there, there's still ways they can try to resist the big four. You know, they can try to resist the big four on the grounds that they're the epistemic tools of the oppressor. Um, okay, well, apply the defensive capabilities of the nuke and show that these big four are actually the same epistemic tools that are shared by everyone by virtue of our evolutionary history. Mm-hmm. If they try to resist the big four on the grounds that the standards are unreasonable for the kinds of questions that they're trying to address, then just apply the nuke's offensive capabilities by arguing that policy decisions uh, should not be driven by what at this point in the conversation is self-confessed, speculative, and unscientific modes of thinking. And when they ultimately relent and submit to the big four, uh, bringing up in their defense things like implicit association studies, callback studies, law enforcement statistics, the works, they lose because the data is not on their side. But before you can get to that point, you must, you must, you must force them away from these modes of thinking that allow for infinite flexibility. Because with the aid of these these modes of thinking, with, with, with the aid of these infinitely flexible frameworks, they're allowed to conclude whatever they want. There are no standards um, that are constrained. Except that the you're wrong and they're right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, yeah. 
I think there's also a psychological thing that's beyond the purview of this conversation, but in my own research and uh, studying the lived experience of people caught up into this and also the phenomenological, sociological events and behaviors that manifest um, as outcomes of the woke ideology, people just aren't happy. It's just people that take this up are not – they're miserable – and do, there's there's got to be a lot of different ways, and maybe that's where art comes in, showing that, um, or just human, just being in human relationship, showing that people are aren't miserable, and then giving them to, the choice not to feel that way, and then pointing, and then reverse engineering. Well, maybe it's your beliefs, you know. So there there's other tact than than the, the strictly uh, scientific one. I mean, it's very important to realize why that misery. Um, become sort of a a cycle that they get caught up in or or cyclone even that they get caught up in and it's ultimately because the ideology is rooted in this so-called dialectical subject object you know whatever you want to say but this basically this ultimately subjective and social view of the world so the idea is of course that you are creating the world according to what you envision in your mind you bring as a you start as a subject and you bring the object into being and come to know yourself through it and then therefore when your object is not becoming what you want it to be when the world is not becoming what you want it to be when your life is not becoming what you envision what you hope for in your mind like you just picture that you're going to have this great life and be accepted and great whatever it is whether it's career whether it's you know get to sit around all day and 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 knit or read or whatever it is make art whatever it is you think you're going to do work on your collective farm puns on the morning fish in the afternoon literary criticism in the evening yeah, yeah, that's perfect. literally the, the vision. When that's not happening, the reason isn't because you are uh, doing something wrong. The reason is that you are you want to bring your subject – their explanation for the reason that your subjective idea is not manifesting in objective reality through the ultimately dialectical tension of between subject and object is because there are other subjects who have other ideas who are in your damn way they are limiting they are, they are they literally they are creating systems of dominance that limit the possibility of subjective creation they are literally creating a circumstance in which they are causing other people to work for their vision of the world. And so you can't manifest your what you think, what you imagine your life to be in kind of almost a schizoid personality disorder fictional kind of way. Mm-hmm. And you can't manifest that. But the reason isn't because you're doing something stupid or it's not real or any of this. It's because other people are dominating your vision with their vision and incorporating you into their vision of the world and exploiting you and in the process and alienating you from uh, your capacity to be productive. So the entire philosophy is actually built to outsource blame for your own failure to not just any other particular person, but to everybody else. And it, that, of course, gains its greatest power when they partic- particular when they pick particular um, scapegoats. And in this case, you know, with critical race theory, they scapegoat whiteness. Within queer theory, they scapegoat normalcy. Within Marxism, they scapegoat property holders and bourgeoisie and so they pick a scapegoat ideology and, and in social to, constructivism they scapegoat science where who, who's the scapegoat social constructivism is a kind of broad ranging um it's a tool 
Yeah, it's a tool that fits within this. It's not its own ideology, like queer theory or critical race theory or um, Marxism. I was just wondering who, who's the scapegoat uh, when science is scapegoated. What's the pattern? Who, who's generally doing that? You'll see it's always done in some other language. The Marxists previously called it bourgeois science. So okay. the bourgeoisie were scapegoated for using the wrong kind of science that didn't advance Western Marxist science. theory. Okay. Yeah, and then you see now that it's it's you know white empiricism or whatever it is that like what's her name, Chandra Prescott-Weinstein said, uh, it causes there to be racism in physics. That or exhausts me. Oh, God, I know. And so then, you know, within within queer theory, they're going to say that, that, you know, it's cis-heteronormative masculinist science that is the problem. And the feminists obviously rode the masculinist science horse until it fell in the river back in the, in the 80s and 90s. And so... Social constructivism is is the is is the name for the broad view that what's actually happening is that everybody in the social circumstance has their own subjective thing that they're bringing into the world, and some of them have dominance that are able to construct how the social reality is going to play out, and thus what the total limits of subjectivity are, which thus l- limits in a very harmful and negative way the people who are in the oppressed positions, uh, and that's in fact what oppression means. Um, and that then – so it's not that the, the social constructivists, that's all of these people. They, they believe that, that society is constructed – it is the – all of history is, is the, the series of constructed social relations that limit people's subjectivity and create opportunities for certain people to dominate other people and to exploit them from their true essence as creator. Yeah. I'm telling you, I, this is I, a I, crackpot religion. I really like the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy's characterization of social constructionism, where they say something to the effect of uh, if there's any core idea in social construction, it's to show that our conceptions of things um, might have been otherwise under a different set of social relations. And to some degree, for some things, that's true. Uh, And I I, I talk about some of those things in in, in my series, uh, Nuking Social Constructionism. Um, but for a lot of the things that they're trying to go after, a lot of the, a lot of the revolutionary kind of changes they're trying to impose, that doesn't really hold up under scrutiny. You see, often there's there's uh, there's there's uh, they'll engage in certain kinds of tricks. Um, they'll try to characterize something that isn't a social construct in terms of things that are socially constructed, like discourses and institutions, things that might actually stand independently of discourses and institutions and, and things that uh, whose whose understanding um, historically preceded the existence of these things. But I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Hmm. Watch my video series, whoever. whoever right. watch the, con- the conceptual penis as a social construct. Yeah. Because yeah. the penis... In that paper, we didn't say that they don't exist. We said that we just shouldn't think of them as anatomical organs. We should think of them in terms of the way that there are social constructions built around it. So now the penis as a construct, but what they've actually done is said the way people talk about penises and think about penises and all these kind of social – what they think are social – I don't even know if that's all socially constructed, but because it's obviously describing something that they're, they're, that's being seen in reality. Well, like um, French use uh, the feminine uh, for a penis. It's la, la pine or whatever it is. So the, the, the gendered construction that the French apply to the penis is separable from the penis because the penis being a male organ can't be a feminine, but French feminize it for some reason. That's weird. Yeah. I got nothing on that. 
Well, I'm just saying. There's construct. We, we, we construct things around the penis. Well, I suppose. And they could be um, otherwise in other circumstances, right? Yeah. The point is that what Crocoduck has said is correct, that they, they invoke social constructivism where it doesn't actually apply uh, in order to try to drag the f- argument back into this frame. And what they're ultimately attempting to do because of that submission to the social or socialist man paradigm is that they are trying to drag when they do this, what they're trying to do is they're trying to drag everything into a frame where everybody agrees with their theory or else they are the creators of the oppression that limits the subjectivity uh, and that causes all the, the meaningful problems of the world, which just so happen to correspond intimately with what they think they need in order to live their entitled lives. Um, very much like the, the, old quote that got dragged up in the atheism arguments so often, which was, I forget, was this Eleanor Roosevelt or something who had remarked that she distrusts the religious often when they say what God wants because it so frequently, co- like, perfectly corresponds with what, with what they actually want. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same kind of thing, you know, they they, they, they want other people. The, the problem with the, the woke or communist ideology is that the entire thing is premised, this entire social man ideology is premised on the idea that everybody else has to tailor their uh, their beliefs, their attitudes, their approach to life in order to accommodate the theorist who has become inconsolable if they're not getting their way. And so ultimately, you end up empowering a very small number of bullies with probably psychological and emotional disorders um, because those are the people who will cleave to this most readily and who will rise to the top in such an order. And everybody has to accommodate their psychopathy constantly because if they're not getting their way and they're able to be sufficiently effective at pushing the theory, it is that everybody's lack of adherence to what they think they need in order to be the fully realized subject uh, is dependent on everybody else doing what they say. And so that's why it's ultimately totalitarian. That's why it ultimately is destructive. That's why it ultimately is going to, to, to cause calamity everywhere it goes is because it ultimately becomes serving, uh, very self-serving to the very small number of people who believe that they can only realize themselves fully as subject or a mega maniacal subject at that because they see themselves as the creator of the subjective universe that becomes the objective universe, etc. It only works, however, when everybody submits to that particular view. And that particular view is only being adhered to because that person happened to obtain enough power, whether that's through rhetoric or whether that's through a, the barrel of a gun, as Mao had it, mm. uh, to make other people participate in it. KC, do you get do you get do you get a disagreement with that? I have no. nothing to add to that at this time. <laughs> <laughs> it's really it's a it is a deeply religious cult that's extraordinarily dangerous. Um, and at the moment, it's just a kind of society dissolving catastrophe because it's not centralized enough. As a matter of fact, I don't think that wokeness will become centralized, partly because it's fractured into this kaleidoscopic intersectional thing where there, every different identity ha- group and intersection has to have its chance to speak up and, and squabble and be at the table. But secondly, because the people who are pushing woke 
uh, with the the money behind it, for example, with the actual or the actual power is. They aren't actually people that think like this. They are people who are using it. Uh, big corporations, right? For example, exactly. this this alliance. I, I I hate to rip off Peter Hitchens, but this alliance between uh, woke folk and uh, well, what the, what they'll call neoliberal, basically corporate um, forces, is probably the most cynical and sinister alliance since the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact. Hmm. If you want to look at the most deformed, disgusting thing in our society right now, uh, the name of it is woke capitalism. Or at least that's that's the name that they give to it. Uh, I'm fine with with taking that name as well. It's it's Chase putting their logo on a pride parade. Um, it's uh, it's Spotify. Um, putting Black Lives Matter logos on its um, on its Twitter page uh, and putting rainbows on its Twitter page, um, for, at least in America and then uh, in Middle Eastern countries. Uh, curiously, the rainbows are gone. Um, what was that meme about the M&Ms? Uh, the, the, there's a story, uh, child labor producing chocolate for M&Ms and then the M&Ms saying, I'm gay, I'm gay, look at me. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. That, that yeah. kind of shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's yeah, it's it's, uh... it's Lindsay Ellis um, talking about solidarity and talking about uh, you know whatever whatever it is uh, whatever the woke talking point is this week or or during the week when she still made videos, um, and then saying by the way this video is brought to you by Audible a subsidiary of the Amazon Corporation you know you go girl that, mm-hmm. this this kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah that's correct. Um, there, there is a very unholy alliance going on here, and uh, there are a number of ways to characterize or frame it that maybe are not best for this conversation. But um, certainly what's happened is that both fascists and communists have realized that they have much more advantage if they have a handshake agreement between one another to, to advance their goals. Um, and. Uh, in fact, my, my view at this point is that they are no longer sufficiently differentiated to where it matters who actually comes out on top. Um, and I say fascists in this regard, not meaning specifically Nazis, but more specifically the, the definition given by Mussolini, which was corporatists. Uh, so the public-private partnership, as it were, that they talk about at the World Economic Forum, for example. And so what I see with this actually knowing kind of how they they view things religiously is that uh, in order to solve the production problem that the Soviets were always plagued by, that socialist and communist states have always been plagued by, that they realized that they had to incorporate markets somehow. Uh, They had to synthesize in uh, markets and that will solve the production problem. And then so what you end up with then is just basically a super two-tiered society, as these communist things always do, because they always produce a super aristocracy uh, who get to live, you know, these fabulous lives of wealth and leisure and comfort, while everybody else, you know, doesn't necessarily have a job to go to because the robots are doing it for them and the AI is doing it for them. And so they can get a UBI that really buying their data off of them so that the big corporations can make their predictions so they can figure out how to make the money that keeps the system rolling and to keep them fat, dumb and happy, they get something like communism, uh, 
you know, they get social justice across the board. We'll just average everybody out. We'll make sure everybody has equity. We're not going to make sure all those differences, which also, by the way, might cause unrest and instability that might break the system that they're trying to implement. We'll make sure that that's all smashed down and evened out, cooled off and calmed down. And so I don't see them any longer as being uh, separate. I see what two sides of the same coin, and that coin is how do we get basically something like global communism uh, that solves the production problem that communism always produces because there's no uh, there's there's absolutely no drive for innovation. The, we can get even deeper into this if you want, but they talk about the need to create there, there's the useless class, which is us, and then there's the creative class of the anointed people who get to be basically party apparatchiks, and the creative class are going to be the ones who are going to uh, have interesting things to do, be in the upper echelon of society, uh, make their comic book movies, and uh, yeah, whatever it takes to vice articles or yeah, the whatever meta con, uh, content you need to enjoy the metaverse and. Um, put on your goggles and accidentally punch your kid. I saw that video on the internet the other day. Some woman put on her VR goggles and starts swinging her arm around. And I don't know if she's doing boxing. She just clocks her kid right in the head. And reality turns out, you know, there was actually a physical object there. And putting on the goggles did not remove you from physical reality. But so it goes. Um, it's kind of a visual display of of kind of the the arrogance and silliness here, but that was a digression. I I I see no distinction between the two there, though I'll, I do also recognize we talked about fascism as the autoimmune response to the cancer earlier. That's its own separate problem. The you know the something I don't know Hitlerian or Francoian is that a word or okay so when we're talking about when you're talking about corporate fascism uh, communist uh, that's a more structural thing rather than the populist fascism that we think of when we think of Hitler and and uh, you know the Aryan man or some sort of conception of a bad state capitalism it's it's that the, the 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 state has fused with the biggest corporate leaders who basically have a operative handshake agreement besides revolving doors between their their you know who's at their their decision making board tables and whatever else but they have a handshake agreement that you know um you guys can do you guys can you corporations can act with basically monopolistic or oligopolistic uh impunity uh, so long as you make sure that you install things that control the people in ways where we, the government, won't be disp- deposed from our power uh, to continue doing what we're doing. So the state and the – you don't need explicit state capitalism like they've integrated in China, but you have something that works kind of the other way around where the um, the, the oligopoly is now sort of this thing that sort of keeps the government in its pocket and – the government, as long as they control the people, don't take the actions that they could take to break up the big corporations for these uh, monopolistic and trust level activities that they shouldn't be engaging in. Does, does, do, does pluckish grassroots liberalism stand a chance against this? I think I if we look tell. at the truckers, the answer is probably yes. Um, we can create a lot more trouble for them than – than we we think we can. It's almost like people just being people 
and not going along with what they're told to do. Uh, I, I compare it all the time to that picture that I've seen on the internet a million times of the elephant tied to a folding chair, little aluminum folding chair. The elephant's just standing there. But when it realizes that just because it has the leash on it doesn't mean it's tied to something that's going to hinder its movement. Um, and I see, I don't know, maybe we'll see this with the trucker convoys. Uh, f- you know, the people are flexing their muscle a bit. It turns out that we're not in this, like, high-tech Star Trek world they want to pretend that we're going to where, oh, well, we'll just get rid of all the truckers and we'll have the trucks drive themselves. Like, it, we don't actually have this, even if we have the technology, we don't have it installed sufficiently to enable this and like where did trudeau go did trudeau you know come out and try to deal with no he fled the country you know so there they the people that are trying to to voice this on us can still be uh deposed from power they can be removed from power and people who are opposed to these things can replace them uh the window has not slammed shut on us so i think it does but it does require people to realize that freedom's on the line period um and the threat is significant. And it turns out that the woke stuff is just a means to an end for this. It's ultimately extremely stupid. And I don't think a whole lot of woke policy is going to stay in place once they have absolute control because woke is a destabilizing force and a perfectly sustainable, as they would say, s- regime does not want destabilizing forces running rampant uh, mm-hmm. throughout it. Um, so I don't I think believe, it's going to. I believe Uncle Yuri had something to say about this. Didn't he? Yes. Yeah. You'll be the first against the wall. That's what he said. Uncle Yuri. Casey, what's your take on pluckish uh, grassroots liberalism's chance against uh, wokedom? Well, look, uh, we're going to have to fight like hell. Um, you know, the road ahead is difficult. It's it's not something that's going to be achieved. And it's not even something that's that there's no such thing as some inevitable historical trend. Uh, maybe liberalism will die. Um, you know, the the rule over the course of human history has been that dictators and tyrants and and people who whoever it is who who controls the military, um, you know, they they get to decide uh, how society is organized. They get to decide how social. Yeah. And 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 what America and what what um, what modern liberal democratic uh, states have is the exception historically speaking, and not the rule. And there's no good reason to believe why. Uh, at least, at least from my point of view, there's no good reason to believe that this rule will necessarily continue to hold um, in the face of, of technological advances. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there, there were some historical points of of um, of, uh, of of origin, an intersecting point of, of origin historically between. Uh, what eventually became the liberal democratic state and what eventually became modern science. Uh, the the modern kind of scientific institutions, you know, when when science went from uh, this kind of uh, unorg- disorganized state into its much more organized state with the with the quote unquote scientific re- revolution, right? The, that that um, that that intersecting circumstance, I don't think necessarily um, played a causal role in in either in either case. I do think that you you need uh, strong liberal democratic institutions in order to be able to perform the scientific uh, uh, activity uh, to the greatest possible degree. Um, but my my point is improved technology does not necessarily equal improved liberal democratic order. you You need that there's another ingredient in there that you need. Um, so 
I can definitely see the possibility of a future where liberalism is dead. It's gone forever. It never comes back. Uh, and you have you, you, you basically have the neon dystopia. You have uh, you, you live in you live in the cyberpunk world. Um, I don't want that world. And I'm going to I'm going to do what I can to protect these valuable and vulnerable um, liberal democratic institutions. But, you know, the time to act was yesterday. Um, so, you know, are you saying you don't want like hearing implants or like cool things like a new I'm, arm that I'm can punch through the wall? I'm fine with that. I want those things. What I don't want is the social organization in which the individual no longer matters. And where, where you're the, literally just a statistic. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. You know, I'm I'm hopeful that liberalism will prevail, but I'm conscious of the fact that if it doesn't, then it's probably gone for good. We have we have this historical moment for the past 300 years. Um, there's no there's no reason to believe that over the course of human history, this won't be looked back upon as a brief golden era um, in an otherwise dark and terrifying world. I kind of want to end it there. <laughs> that where we should end it do you know final words if, yeah yeah if you don't want that then do something resist uh undifferentiation hmm. hashtag undifferentiate or differentiate undifferentiate yeah resist the no, undifferentiate right right resist undifferentiation yeah. differentiate yes yeah. hashtag differentiate be unique well, thanks, guys. I'm going to wrap up the recording now. We could have a little after after time and chill out. But um, thanks you both for uh, finally uh, meeting uh, together on a public forum. Is this the first time you guys have spoken, uh, like on a YouTube or a podcast or something like that? Yeah, most yep. of our communication has been over the phone. Oh, great! I'm glad to make it public. Pop the lid off of that. Mm -hmm. Nicely done, Benjamin. Thank you. <laughs>